What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Checo. Today I have guests Sophia Guerrera and Steve Krauss from Bessemer Venture Partners and the authors of the recently published State of Health Tech 2023. Sophia, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. <laughs> My big takeaway from reading the report, which excellent job, um, is that despite everything in our space being down, startup funding, public company performance. Bessemer, you guys are still bullish on digital health. Steve, why? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of context. I mean, Hallie, you're one of the OGs in the space. So you've been around probably since, you know, the, the term digital health is coined and the start of the industry back in, you know, the late 2000s, right? When the High Tech Act and Obamacare passed. And so I think we think that this sector, the digital health sector, just like almost every other sector that Bessemer is invested in, software as a service, consumer, fintech, it's going through a classic innovation cycle, right? Where, you know, there's, there's, there's a trigger that happens, which creates a whole bunch of innovation. In this case, we think it really was the High Tech Act and Obamacare that triggered a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs to come into healthcare and innovate, there's sort of an a, 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 a inflated period of expectations where everyone's creating new companies. You know, entrepreneurs create the companies, venture capitalists come in and follow the entrepreneurs, invest. Over time, those companies scale. You know as well as we do that there's plenty of really scaled companies in our sector. Um, and then ultimately, the public markets become receptive to those companies, right, because they have scale. And, and that happened in healthcare. And frankly, we think there was a whole cohort of companies created just like in every other industry in the early innings that were really interesting and went public. Unfortunately, right at the peak of our sector, there's always a natural decline, right, that happens in a mm -hmm. hype cycle, innovation cycle. It just happened to be that our decline with digital health happened at the same time that the macro market had an overall decline, right, post-2021. And so that just makes it feel a lot worse. But I don't think this is anything abnormal. Like we fundamentally don't believe digital health companies are bad companies, right? We believe there's a lot of good innovation happening, a lot of interesting business models. It just happens to be that we're right now in the trough of an innovation cycle. And it feels really bad because that's compounded by a yeah. macro market downturn. Yeah. Yeah. And I will also start by saying, Hallie, we debated a lot. Do we call this digital health, health tech? Honestly, they're synonymous. So yes. um, I'll define that uh, broadly, both healthcare software and tech-enabled services and value-based care businesses are all-encompassing in, in the cohort of companies that we've looked at. There are a few silver linings that, that we outline in the report and that we uh, were excited about. One, 
There was a ton of market cap that went public and created. There was also a cohort of companies that were already public that grew that market cap. About $90 billion were created in the last five years. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a ton of companies in the private market that saw uh, liquidity too during the last few years as well that are great businesses. We also think that with the readjustments in the market and really focused on efficient growth and unit economics, we're going to see great businesses go public in that next cohort that that we're confident we're just in that first inning, like, like Steve said. Another silver lining as well is just the M&A that's happened in this space. So like 25% of um, the market cap got acquired in the last few years by incumbents. So really showing that incumbents are awake to the reasons why these companies need to exist. So we say like pg is out of the bottle, like value-based care is a better way of delivering care. Obviously there's adjustments and how do we scale these models, but we, we're big believers in the, the trends of delivering better care using, using technology to do so. Yeah, Hal, add, add, can I add one other thing? I think, you know, just, I think there's two types of bubbles, right? There's a, there's a, there's a bad bubble and an okay bubble. <laughs> the bad bubble <laughs> is when, okay. is when market, the, the valuation of companies is, is, is wrong, right? But also on top of that, the companies fundamentally aren't great. I think of a bad, really bad bubble being the dot-com mm. era, right? Like pets.com, yeah. yeah. Webvan. Ultimately, Webvan became a good business, right? DoorDash or what have you. But like the version 1.0 of those models, they fundamentally didn't work. They were based on eyeballs. There wasn't really a PL yeah. that would support it. And they were also overvalued. I think this time in digital health, it was just a, it was an okay bubble, right? It's, it was a natural innovation cycle bubble, which is market valuations just got too high. It's not that the businesses yeah. fundamentally are bad. In fact, Sophia has done a great bunch of work we at Bessemer have on benchmarking how these companies scale. Yeah. We released it several months ago. And when companies get to $100, $200 million in our sector, they're actually really interesting businesses. So I mm. actually think there's reason to be, that's also a reason to be hopeful. Yeah. And then the question is, what gets us out of this trough? Which I think there's plenty of things we can talk about on that that gets yeah. us out of the trough. But I want, just want to state that, that this is like a bubble, but it's not a yeah. horrible bubble. <laughs> uh, that's, I like that. I like that way of thinking about it. So it's like, these aren't bad companies. It's just they had bad valuations. They were misvalued. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Not all of them. I'm sure that there are businesses that shouldn't have getting well, funded or that spend money that didn't focus on the yeah. right unit economics. And maybe some of them will be able to make the right pivot, maybe not. But I think fundamentally, there are great businesses and, and the cohort. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the public markets because you guys spent a lot of time on the report, just diving into some of these benchmarks. One thing that stood out to me is that when you compare digital health to other industry benchmarks, when we hit the so-called peak of inflated expectations, which was about February 2021 to May 2022, digital health stocks were down 60%. NASDAQ was down 19%, but traditional healthcare companies were up 9%. So like, what's, why, why is that? What were they doing that digital health wasn't doing? Was it the age of the companies? Because so many of the digital health companies were companies that IPO'd more recently. So there's more volatility since they were newer to the market. What, what was it that uh, led to those stocks being down so much compared to regular traditional healthcare companies? I, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's a couple things. One is generally healthcare, we know, is viewed as an economically resistant sector, right? So people view, you know, there's peaks and troughs, but, you know, healthcare, partly because of the growth of healthcare as a, as a segment, it's just viewed as kind of being a, a safe place for, 
for investors. I'd say that's one. But but you point to the difference between the incumbents, you know, the traditional companies trading up versus the the digital health companies trading down. And I think there, the beautiful thing about healthcare is once you get your product or service installed into a customer, which takes a long time, it's a really sticky business, right? It's a very attractive recurring business for the most part, revenue business. And as a result, it's got pretty good cash flow dynamics, right, when you get to maturity. And the incumbents are proof of that in this industry. We can name a lot of them, you and I and Sophia. So there's a stability, a safety, a nice cash flow prop profile of healthcare. In other words, when growth and risk is off in the markets, investors look for value. And I think healthcare in general is a pretty good value stock, right, the incumbents are. Now, yeah. contrast that to the digital health companies. You know this as well. They were super immature, they were growth at all costs, a lot of them. The unit economics were not fully proven out, right? So they weren't viewed as safety. They were viewed as growth plays. And on top of that, I would add, and this is a little bit of the issue of our sector being relatively immature compared to other venture-backed sectors. You know, I think public markets are smart, but I don't think they quite understood necessarily what the difference of some of the things we've outlined between healthcare yeah. software and value-based care and B2B2C businesses and B2C business. Like they were all grouped together, right? And, yeah. and it just takes a while for the capital markets. These are smart people. They're going to get it, but it takes a while yeah. for them to understand the business yeah, models. I think, you know? I think they get confused about digital health and, right. and how it's different from healthcare IT 10 years ago. Right. And if they should cover them like healthcare or should they put them under like the software technology equities? Totally, totally. And there's so many subsectors of our sector, right? And so a company like Pear, right, Therapeutics is wildly different than a company like Progeny or, and the payers are different than the self-insured employer virtual care businesses. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in healthcare, right? It's a massive sector. There's a lot of heterogeneity in digital health. And so I think it's going to take a while for the public markets to really refine how they analyze these businesses. They'll get there. By the way, these, again, a lot of them are good businesses, right? And they're, they themselves, we think, are going to become incumbents and become sticky and become good cash flow generating businesses. So they'll get there. I just think it'll take another cycle for the, uh, you know, for the markets to really understand the business. I was going to add, I mean, definitely the volatility of a newer industry versus being valued on cash flow and EBITDA is, is very different. And I think when you look at fast growing companies that are making the transition from burning cash to making money, it's like definitely a path that these companies are being valued in different ways. So it happened in the cloud industry as well. We looked at back to 2011 to 2016, the very first five years of the cloud SaaS industry and how the, those companies were valued on revenue multiples. And they're very low. I think it was like four, around four uh, times revenue. And then also the heterogeneity that Steve is pointing to, the nuances of our business models are very different. And it's a reason why we focus a lot on thinking about what are the right metrics to look at these businesses and then how do we track these companies over time so then there could be a bigger cohort to have more information to understand how to how to properly value them and then what's the normal yeah. right we need more but, but by the way that's one of my favorite slides and insights in in the in the presentation and you can go to our website bvp.com to to see the report but i think I'll link that, to it in show notes thank you hal i always appreciate it but i think uh 
I think the the cloud sector. Listen, as Sophia said, 2011 to 2016, the kind of uh, the, the innovation cycle and the market up cycle, down cycle they went through. It almost looks the same if you map digital health from oh, 2018 yeah. to 2023. And yeah. if you were an investor and invested a dollar, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever you know amount of money in the cloud sector in 2011, and you looked at your your portfolio today, you'd be a very happy person. So yeah. I just think this is again, it goes back to the point we made at the beginning. This is a normal innovation cycle, and so I think right now everybody's doom and gloom. Woe is me. Digital health stinks, <laughs> but. I think if you're, but you're still bullish. Well, if you're your glass is half full, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a. I'm not a future teller. But if yeah. your glass is half full, that's what you got to rest your. Yeah. Rest the confidence on. Yeah. Well, we can't talk about the public markets, and we can't. In, and we can't like focus on what's happened in the last few years without talking about SPACs. Um, and in my research, and I have a blog post on this, I can also link to it, is that 40% of the currently traded digital health companies that went public in 2021, like 13 out of 20 of them took the SPAC path that year. And just to compare 2019, 2020, each had six IPOs. So we had an incredible increase in IPOs. And that was really driven by SPACs. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, a SPAC is kind of a blank check company that goes public with the intention of raising funds to acquire an existing private company. And it helps a private company go public faster. So how did that, I mean, and we are not seeing any SPACs anymore. That kind of disappeared. Yeah, and if you look done. at the performance of a lot of the SPACs, they not have not good. done well. No. Um, so how do you think that kind of impacted where we are in the public market? Because if did you look at SPACs versus like traditional IPOs in that basket you put together? I did not. And on purpose, excluded a lot of the companies that went on SPAC because those stocks were trading before and they were incredibly volatile mm. once they knew what company they were purchasing. So we excluded that. The only company, I believe, in the cohort that went through a SPAC was uh, Talkspace and knew is because we wanted to include more companies that had the D2C model yeah. that were public. Yeah. You know, my, my only thought on the SPACs is I... I I mean, that was a that was a weird period. <laughs> I always found it very odd that, you know, you go public through a traditional IPO process. I've been part of one. And there's a reason that there's the process and that it takes time. <laughs> right. There are there are, you know, you can't provide too much forward looking statements because they're speculative by nature, right? And you have full yeah. set of disclosures. And it just feels so felt so odd for me that for these much more speculative companies, which generally were the SPAC companies, right? Because they couldn't go, you'd go the traditional route if you could, that yeah. they could provide as many for as long, they could provide financials out to 2028. I'm, I'm maybe joking. I don't know exactly what the rules were, but they could provide forward looking financials, which it just felt like a different set of rules in a, what clearly was a, growth slash risk is on market, that wasn't going to end well. And you pointed to the fact that, it, by the way, it didn't end well for digital yeah. health companies. It also didn't well end well for a lot of other growth yeah, stage yeah, yeah. companies We're, outside we of digital health, right? Yeah. So we weren't unique yeah. to your point. I, yeah. I never got it. And frankly, by the way, for an immature industry where we just talked about the capital markets really needing to understand our industry for the long-term yeah. success of our industry, that wasn't a good thing, right? Because it didn't allow for a full examination of the business. It didn't allow for understanding of all the risk because of the disclosures. It allowed you to put speculative financial statements out there, which doesn't help, right? Build confidence. Yeah. That just wasn't a great thing. I think that's an era <laughs> bygone, right? <laughs> uh, it was like a dream. We'll be right back after the break. 
<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, last thing on public markets, and then I want to kind of move to startup funding. In your report, you note that over the last five years, the healthcare incumbents earned over a trillion in market cap. So my question is, why aren't they more acquisitive? We actually don't have a long list of acquisitions over 500 million in, in digital health. My count is 10, but we have these quite large incumbents that are only getting bigger. Why, why aren't they buying? Are they building? Are they just doing their own thing? Are people not building what they need? It's a great question. It is like the million dollar question, or maybe it's the billion dollar question to your point. I would I want to think about it more. Maybe we'll do a future podcast on this. But I I, I okay. think my initial responses would be, frankly, if you're United Healthcare, or I saw it today, I think it was Elevance, they printed a billion eight of profit in, you know, Q3 alone, which is just crazy, right? You know, a $100 million revenue digital health company isn't going to really move your needle. <laughs> so mm. I think we might need this sector to mature a little bit to where our companies get, They're not big get, enough. get to scale. I would say the mm. other thing is if I think about the, most of the incumbents, and I'm probably doing a disservice to some of them, we believe in most, this is probably outside of digital health, but for sure in digital health, there's like a product advantage, you can have a team advantage, and you can have a distribution advantage, right? And I think in healthcare, unfortunately, to date, distribution advantage has won over product advantage. Like, great product doesn't always win in healthcare. In fact, it probably rarely wins in healthcare. I think that yeah. might change, by the way, Hallie, with AI. <laughs> I think that may change mm. because I think it actually might lead to products that make physicians and people's lives easier, better, faster, cheaper, et cetera. I think that might happen. Yeah. But right now, it's been distribution. And frankly, the incumbents have all that advantage, right? And yeah. so, you know, <clears throat> startups, when they go to negotiate with those incumbents, it's like the incumbents are like, hey, <laughs> we got the pipes, we got the sales force, we got the partnerships. Like, yeah, we'll acquire you, but we're not acquiring sure. you because the product wins. So that dynamic needs to change in order for the incumbents to yeah. feel like, oh man, we could be disrupted, right? And I'm hoping that's what the next era of healthcare, digital health will lead to. 
Also to add, we've we've also seen other companies be acquisitive in healthcare that are trying to start a strategy or have a stronger strategy in this space. I mean, Amazon, uh, Microsoft did, did lots of acquisitions. We yeah. also see like Best IBM. Buy and Walmart, IBM. So you can't ignore a $4 trillion market. You need to have a strategy. I think Steve and I always discuss this with our broader team is we want to see every company, large company in the world, have a healthcare strategy and you can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. All right. So on on the topic of startups, one of the things in your report that was really interesting was on the time to generate capital. So the report shares that compared to digital health, compared to traditional SaaS companies, the median digital health company needs more capital to get to 100 million in revenue. And only three of the companies that you guys studied, Viva, R1, and Model N, have actually made more money than they raised. How is this? Uh, there's so much here to unpack. That's that's a little concerning. That's not very sustainable. We have a lot of capital out there that is not generating more capital that has been than has been put into it. But why? I think we understand why healthcare requires more capital. It just requires more time, right? Or something else I'm missing. Well, the one thing I will say is there are only three companies that have generated more cash, but those have been public for a long time. There are also other 13 companies that are EBITDA profitable that will ultimately end up generating more cash than they've raised historically with more time. So I'm hopeful in that sense. The second thing to note is there's also that sign of the times, right? If if the private and public market in the last 10 years were pushing you to raise as much money as you could because the cost of capital was low and growth at all costs was most important because you were being rewarded on a valuation on that growth. Top line, yeah. That incentivized people to raise more money. So everyone says that in this times are where the best companies are created. So I'm hopeful that yeah. the generation of companies that won't have the ability to raise that much capital will be more thoughtful in how they deploy yeah. that money that they raise. Well, and you say we need some startup phoenixes to rise from the ashes. What do you mean by this? I mean, when you look at the trough of the public market, we also think that we're a little delayed in the private market and we're going to still see some of that reckoning in, in the private markets. And Likely, we're going to see a cohort of companies that will be able to raise capital that are really addressing this hair on fire problem and a really strong why now type of um, solutions that that they're going after that are the ones that are going to be able to to raise capital with with the right kind of efficiency metrics that we outline in that kind of fundamental fund, fundability metric slides that, that we include in the report. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm hearing a lot from founders now who are trying to be the phoenixes rising from the ashes. So for those that raised a seed or series A in, let's say, 2021 and are now at the point of having to decide between just putting their foot on the gas and investing as much as possible in top line growth, but increasing their burn or needing to fundraise um, and needing to fundraise sooner, or being more conservative, cutting spend to extend that runway, and perhaps not show the sort of month over month, quarter over quarter growth that they would like to show, but at least having 
more time to get to profitability or whatnot. I'm curious how investors are looking at these companies um, and a few advice for these companies, because this is a conversation I'm having with founders on a daily basis now. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We get this all the time as well. And how has our bar changed in the last, yeah. say, year or so for, for investing? And actually, really, we'll point out to, to founders to look at our fundability metrics and what does that mean, right? The bar is definitely higher, but then there's a trade-off between how much you grow and how much you burn. And if you look at the benchmarks that we included, we actually lowered the expectations of growth because we want to see efficient growth. And that's what the market is rewarding. So I'll really incentivize founders to be thoughtful about how they're spending money to extend that runway and to really think about the investments they're making and the return that they get as a company uh, to doing those those tests. Mm-hmm. I think it's very different when you're a seed company versus a series A and B stage company. And most of those metrics are most applicable for series A plus. Yeah. Because when you're a seed company, you're testing a lot of things and not always will result in in a return or growth. So I think the most important thing when you're a seed is proving product market fit and outlining what that means for your business model, your market, and the problem that you're going after. And then for later stage companies, it's really about being thoughtful about efficient growth and and proving uh, strong unit economics over what your top line is. Yeah. And we're seeing fewer deals um, in digital health compared to 2020, 2021. But how are you seeing the valuations reflected in that? You know, I think we look at the number of deals and dollars that are going into this space. We're still seeing a lot of great companies being funded. We're just kind of down from the peak or the frost of 21, but still up six times what we saw in 2012 and near what we saw in 2019. So kind of feel like we're back to normal um, in in this environment where companies are still being funded. They're just diligence processes are taking longer and valuations are coming down, especially mm-hmm. when you think about kind of what are the right multiples and do you value a company on revenue and how do you adjust that based on a company's unit economics and, and the multiples that we see in the public market where we think that this company would ultimately trade at, at, at exit, um, in the future. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you think founders should do? Those that had very generous valuations in 2021 that have not been able to grow into those former valuations. Do they, what, what would you suggest to a founder like that? I would suggest to, to not think about or not, not take into a lot of the incentives from internal, like, wanting an up round or being against a down round and maybe be, being more open to taking term sheets with different terms, some of them very dirty or lots of different mm. warrants and different things going on. I believe that it's better to have a clean set of terms that potentially can be a down round and set the proper incentives internally for everyone in the cap table and the ability to continue racing the future versus racing something that will have lots of different terms that perhaps is going to make it harder for the company to succeed in the future. But that's a personal opinion. Yeah, I think, I mean, that could be its own episode too, just like walking through that because um, there could be some really great companies that are able to kind of make it through this, um, but not if they're, they, they have a term sheet that's like, you know, handcuffing them. 
So I think that could be a whole other subject um, for another podcast. Is there anything else within the report that you wanted to share with the listeners? This report came out of the conversation of feedback that we've received from lots of other founders, investors, and operators in the industry from the benchmarking work that we've been doing. So first, just want to say like thank you for all the feedback that that folks are giving us and just reach reach out to us if you have other questions or even follow-ups to this because it's informed a lot of the work that we're doing. So we're grateful for that and for inspiring the work. Amazing. Well, Sophia, Steve, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Hallie. Great to be on again. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, check the show notes for link to the report. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.